The Restless Midlifer podcast. Get health, weight and life back on your terms. Hi, right, welcome to episode 98 of the podcast. Almost there at 100 and as I said in last week's episode, I am planning something special for the episode 100 to celebrate um, reaching 100, which is a surprise to me as anybody else, I guess, um, but a, a great celebration. I've got some former guests who are giving their pearls of wisdom and nuggets in two-minute chunks to share with you um, to hopefully give you a variety of different views and perspectives and little nuggets, sprout-sized pieces of advice, wisdom, perspective-changing things to help you go on your way and uh, incorporate them into your your own midlife. So look forward to that in a couple of weeks' time. Um, But now, a couple of things. I'm going to share some food for thought with you very shortly, but I also want to trail the interview today with um, my friend Owen Ryan, OMJ Ryan. Now, you may have read the show notes and know what Owen's current focus is in terms of his work, but if you haven't, if you landed your call, I'm not going to go into what it is now because I'm not going to tease it because it kind of unfolds really nicely in the interview. If you already know, then fair enough. You, you know what I'm. You know what uh, what's to come. But the story, the the experience, and the wisdom that Owen shares, um, really, which takes us through um, burnout, corporate corporate sort of uh, career burnout and then shifting into what he does now he shares some really brilliant insights he's a great bloke we had a good catch-up it's ironic isn't it the first time we catch up is to record an interview um catch up before since before lockdown which you know it's got a lot of things to answer for i'm afraid as, as the old say covid19 but um there we go so it was lovely to catch up with him and uh, he's a great communicator and really shares some great things as we go so hopefully you'll enjoy that interview um what I do want to do, though, is give some food, my usual food for thought around a particular topic. People-pleasing. Now, are you a people-pleaser? Or do you, would you class yourself as a people-pleaser? Now, the reason I ask that is because I think this, this phrase is thrown about a lot. Um, and it's certainly something I can apply to myself and have, can certainly see that I've applied over the years. But there's an important aspect to this, because what we often focus on when we talk about people-pleasing is the behaviour the things that we do in order to people please and understandably because it's tangible and it often means it's the example of the self-sacrifice the burning ourselves out in order to meet the needs or demands etc and putting ourselves last so that's an important thing to understand so perhaps that's you perhaps you um you may not recognize that in yourself but you have a tendency to put yourself to the back of the queue and um are always seeking to help support smooth waters where there's conflict comfort help resolve um rescue people even in that sense and that's that's part of the trait or the the telltale signs if you like i guess of a people pleaser but i think where the real toll comes from yes it's in what we do but the real toll is the underlying the underlying grind i guess of the feelings the the this drive the sense of duty the anxiousness, the feeling of constant guilt that you're not doing enough, that you need to, that you should, that you are responsible for everybody else's happiness and that in so doing, your own happiness takes a back seat. So if you ever think about that for a moment, because I am talking about different things rooted in the same thing, if you like. The behaviour, that's what shows itself and that's where we often address our efforts to change and shift, we often say, right, I'm going to put in a pause um, before I say yes. I'm going to take myself off and have a think about it before I before I do something or agree to something or commit to something. Or I'm going to kind of nicely back out or think of an exit strategy to a particular relationship that I've committed to. And I don't mean a necessarily loving relationship, although it might be. Um, you know, we think about practical solutions to manage our behaviour and to mitigate how involved we might become in the people pleasing. That's a key and an important part of it. However, what we can often be left with is the feeling, the inner feeling, and that comes from, rooted from a lot of things. You know, from the from our sense of what gave us a sense of validity and status or value as we grew up. Um, you know, we got some sense of reward from that. We learned it from others, perhaps a self-sacrificing parent or that kind of thing. Um, we've learned that as a strong set of values, perhaps through our religion or faith or something like that. There's lots of reasons. The key thing is, it's we're not we're not talking about digging deep into that in this particular perspective because we don't necessarily need to. Sometimes it's useful, particularly if it's particularly crippling. 
But for many of us, it's useful enough to distinguish between there is the behaviour, but underlying it is the general, ongoing, chronic feeling of a need to people please, of not being worthy or feeling guilt. And that sense of anxiousness, that sense of discomfort, ill at ease, when we know that somebody is unhappy or something is not quite right and we are not in a position to do it or we know we shouldn't do it, that kind of thing. So it's that that I want to particularly focus on today in, in a food for thought because it is important to recognise the difference between them. It's good work to manage ourselves. And this is only for the people who are people pleasers, who will self-sacrifice in order to step out. It's great to help people. It's great to be there for people. It's great to be a shoulder to cry on. Um, it's great to offer support and advice. However, the people pleaser goes that bit further, takes ownership of somebody else's happiness. For all, takes not so much ownership, but owns the responsibility for making sure somebody's happy or fixed or whatever. And it's the underlying bit that can be particularly crippling because you can deal with the behaviour and still have that underlying feeling and thought. And that can be tricky and hard to deal with. However, it's, it's one of those things where if we apply some thought and some awareness to it, it can actually help and make things better over time. The key thing here is practice. It's firstly knowing that there is this feeling, this drive, this sense that can manifest in the behaviours. But it's that that we need to focus on and just address. So my little tip, I guess, and I say little in the sense that this is not something that's trivial, I would like to think, but will need to be applied in the small moments when you catch yourself grinding at yourself, feeling that guilt for somebody else not being happy or some, somebody else having a problem that you feel for whatever reason, you need to solve and save and rescue them, whatever that is. And it's a question, I guess, to ask yourself is, who says? Who says I need to do that? Who says this feeling is valid, is right? Now it's a feeling, so we have them. But what I'm what I'm suggesting here is that we challenge that where it comes from by saying who says? Because often that who says is a is a seemingly simple question, but it can uncover the often the roots of where it comes from. Because often there's nobody in particular says you have to do that. There's nobody in particular out there that says you have to do that. Even the people that we seek and strive to help often don't even don't have any expectation of our help or any thought or sense of need from us particularly. They might have a need, but most people recognise that in themselves it's their they own their position, they own their happiness, they are the ones that need to do the work. They may have a problem, they may need a bit of support, a bit of advice, a shoulder to lean on, just like us all. But each and every one of us own our own duty and responsibility for our own well-being and life, etc. So that who said, who says, is about trying to highlight whether there's something in particular. And often what it can reveal is nobody in particular says. It might be in a strong parent or an upbringing or a culture um, or an influence in, in uh, previous you know years. Or it might just be you driving it yourself. So either way, the answer to that question is important because the who says, it's less about the answer actually, it's more about the challenge. Who says I need to be responsible for that person? Because the next part is then to go, okay, if they own their right, if it's their work to do, we all have our work to do, and if it's somebody else's work to do, I need to let it go. If there's something I can assist with by a bit of advice or whatever, and it's the it's the right thing to do, then great. But it's about not it's about stepping away from that. So it's about giving ourselves that space by doing that and allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to let go and allow somebody else to own their own shit, for want of a better phrase. Because we've all got it. We've all got our own baggage. We've all got our own work, and we need to do our own work in order to be more well-rounded, to grow, to empower ourselves, and develop the tools. We None of us get resilient by constantly being rescued. So that is just food for thought for the for the people pleasers out there. As, as somebody, I often joke about being a recovering perfectionist. I'm a work in progress with the people pleasing, uh, but it really, really helps me to catch myself in the act and to ask that because often it's the unreasonable expectation in my head that is putting that pressure on. So if you're a people pleaser, then recognise that there is the difference between the behaviour which comes out of the feeling and it's the feeling that we need to address more often than not um, before it manages. Yes, there are tactics we can manage in the behaviour side, but if we can catch those feelings as they arise, 
we can start to challenge them and get that practice in in small ways, constant challenging, constant changing, constant reshaping of the narratives in our head. We may never get there. It may not be a complete finished job. But what I can tell you from experience is that the, the weight, the burden of people pleasing gets lighter, a lot lighter. And you can often be free for some periods of time. Not all the time, but for some periods of time. So I hope you enjoyed that food for thought. On with the interview with Owen. Let me know your thoughts on any of this, any feedback, any questions for the show, any thoughts around potential guests, then drop me a line at dave at restlessmiddlelifer.com. Take care. Hi, Owen. It's great to have you along. We've been talking about this for a while. Uh, yes. We've been dying to get you on the podcast, and I know it's just circumstances and timings for both of us. Um, but I know you, we've known each other for a lot of years, and there's a couple of key reasons why I wanted you on the podcast, which is to talk about your backstory and also yeah. what you do now and your focus. So do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and your backstory initially, and then we'll dig into what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So... Um, my background uh, up until 2018 was um, radio and entertainment. Um, I was I weirdly trained as a graphic designer, did that for a little bit after I graduated from uh, Newcastle uh, Northumbria University and didn't really enjoy it, wasn't in the right job. I ended up working in radio, purely by chance, answered an ad, started writing radio commercials which then led to me going on air, being a presenter for a time, um, not full-time, but just doing standing stuff and cover stuff, which was enough of a taste to think I don't really like being on air, but I'm quite fascinated with the whole idea of trying to improve performance on air. And, uh, and there's a bit of an ego as well of wanting to get into programming management because that was the sexy side of the business. Right. You know, writing ads is not necessarily that sexy, although I did win a few awards, I'm pleased to say, That's good. Um, in my time, but then I ended up in programming management uh, and did that for probably 15 years at quite a senior level and ended up in Australia for four years working with the Australian Radio Network, three years in Sydney, a year in Melbourne, came back to the UK and people often ask me why and um, <laughs> I still wonder that sometimes. Um, came back and uh, I worked my way then up into uh, the position of Group Content Director for the Bauer Radio Network, uh, which was Europe's largest radio network commercial stations from the top of Scotland, uh, all the way down the north of England, into the Midlands, and a couple of stations in London. Uh, I ran that for 2013 to 2018. Um, and then I left, I took redundancy, and started my next stage of my life, I guess. Yeah, and well, that's kind of skirting over some of the experiences you had in that. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's, it, just to clarify, the program programming is not yeah. computer programming, it's programming as oh, a program yeah, on the, yeah. ra- the it's So basically my responsibility when I was running radio stations was everything that came out of the speakers, excluding the commercials. So music, right. presenters, uh, news content. My job was really to devise and implement strategies to try and grow listeners Right. Um, in each of the different markets so it wasn't like one size fits all although radio has definitely moved in that direction we were trying to develop content specific to markets like Newcastle, Birmingham, you know, Nottingham, Sheffield, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Inverness right. you know, all over the place really. So it sounds like I mean obviously from an outsider it sounds like that would be quite a fast changing fast paced type of world because of the moving parts in that is that fair to you? Yeah, it moved. It moved a lot. Um, there's uh, there was always this desire because the, the way you monitor or the way you're measured is what they call um, through radio, the radio audience, radio joint audience research. I think it is, if I remember rightly. And um, it's basically Ipsos do it, and they come to your door with a diary. So um, it's a massively flawed system because it relies on <laughs> recall and it relies on people filling in a diary on time and if you'd imagine if you've ever done a food diary the first two days are pretty accurate and by Sunday you're like oh what did I do on Wednesday yeah. and that kind of happened with with Rajar so we were we were you know we were measured on that but it is what it is and that's that, that was the metric but because they we used to get measured every three months we would have a set of results which would say these stations are doing well or these stations aren't doing well and there'd be this enormous sort of like desire to get everything going in the right direction so you'd have an overarching strategy which was supposed to be long term, but it always ended up being very short term. As in, what can we do now to make it right. work to get more audience in, to get people, more people listening in the first place, get them listening for longer? Uh, and so there was always lots of moving parts. Music was constantly changing, production was constantly changing, strap lines were constantly changing, and presenters in the end 
if you had shows that weren't delivering audiences after a time they would be changed as right. well so there was a lot of a lot of hiring a lot of firing and some pretty uncomfortable conversations along the way you know yeah i can imagine um yeah so from what you said though like you kind of answered an ad did you have an ambition to be in that world, or what? What, what, was, what were you wanting to do when you grow up? I guess is, a, is the question of the. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, <laughs> when I was little, I wanted to be a builder, like right. my dad. Right. I grew out of that when I realised I didn't like the cold <laughs> um, at all. But I think I'd always wanted to be. I was good at two things at school. Really good at two things, um, or excelled in, in two areas mainly, which was writing and art. Mm. And you know, I was all right at maths and physics and all that kind of stuff, and I got relatively decent GCSEs but for me art and uh, and English were the ones that I really sort of like had a, had a real interest in but like most teenagers when it came to do your options I was quite lazy and I thought art is much easier than English so when I go to my next sort of like post or secondary college or whatever you would call it secondary education higher education sorry I just decided to do art. I wanted to be a graphic designer, so I had this idea of being, you know, it was back in the day when sort of in the 80s and 90s, graphic designers were cool and there was always not, you know, mm. there's supposed to be plenty of money in it. Um, and I guess this, there probably still is, but um, that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And and the, the radio writing was, I was actually, I had a, I had a job um, uh, postgraduate in, a, in, a, in the fly fishing industry, which was a, J.R. Hartley gags, right. you know, we're always we're never far away. And I was in this little office, converted terrace house, which was three stories with a factory on the side or a warehouse on the side. And I was their in-house graphic designer. Right. And it was this company and they, they basically manufactured and distributed um, fly fishing equipment. So my job in the, in the year I was there was to design this catalogue and to do their advertising. And um, I was in the office on my own. There was nobody there. And I had a radio to keep me going. And I just listened to the radio all the time. And... I just thought, how cool is it? Simon Mayer was kind of my favourite presenter at the time. How cool is it to work in radio? It would be so amazing to, to be in that field. I never dreamed I could actually do it. Um, and then one day I was just driving home and I heard an advert on, on the radio because I'd switched across. I remember it because when Princess Diana died, Radio 1, what I realise now is they sort of have to do official mourning. So they have to play, like when the Queen died recently, they have to play yeah. certain levels of music and do a certain amount of... Uh, of respectful broadcasting and this went on for a week on Radio 1 and as a 22 year old I was like this is boring as batshit I don't want to listen to this so I flicked to a station called Kiss at the time they were rebranding to Galaxy and they were putting an ad out for a creative copywriter and I was in the car and I was listening to it and I thought oh, I could do that and then I convinced myself I couldn't and then I was seeing my brother who lived down south a couple of weeks later and we were talking about it and I'd said I'd thought about applying and never did and he basically kicked me in the arse he's my big brother and he just said why can't you do it apply so I applied, I'd missed the deadline, but then I got a, a note through a couple of weeks later saying, look, we'd really like to come for an interview. So I went in and I was told later that I got the job because I wasn't an arsehole. And that was pretty much the criteria they were looking oh, that's, for. That's pretty good. They had quite a lot of arseholes right. apply for the job. Right. And they said, look, you know, we just liked you. You could, you could tell you were creative. We knew you could write. We could teach you the skills. And that's, that's how I started in radio. So there was no grand plan. And there never has been a grand plan in radio. I just sort of follow my nose and I'm quite driven and quite ambitious. So I think it just sort of ended up where I was pure sort of, I don't know, stubbornness, I guess, to, 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 to do something right, you know? Yeah. And not being an arsehole. Not being an arsehole. I can't believe yeah, Maybe a few people will, will probably My, say I am, you know? I think if you get to any stage in life, there's always, you're always going to pick up one or two people yeah, yeah. who would disagree with that. But I think actually, you remind me, I can't remember the, the quote or where it came from, but you know, if you wake up on a morning and, and meet, meet an arsehole, then they're probably an arsehole. But if you wake up on a morning and everybody's an arsehole, yeah. then you're probably the arsehole. <laughs> so I think that's generally that's not yeah, a, yeah. I, I couldn't tell you who said it, but, I'd, um, but I think that's, it's quite an interesting thing because there's a number of, number of people when I speak to, you know, with the, the wisdom of age, that often say, just be nice, be kind, yeah. don't be an arsehole, you know, those kinds of things. And I think actually that probably is more valuable than a lot of, a lot of so-called business advice you might get in life. <laughs> totally. You know, my, my dad, I, I, I was talking, funny enough, I mentioned this, this dad joke my dad joke, it wasn't mine, but my dad always said to me when I was growing up, you know, when you get into work, or wherever you are, you treat the cleaner the same as you treat the CEO. Yeah. And my gag was always, which means I'm now terrified of the cleaner, you know. <laughs> um, but it was, I always, you know, I always remember wherever I worked, I always had a relationship with the cleaner. It's not like a, a romantic relationship, but it was always, 
important to me that everybody within the building, no matter what job they were doing, was spoken to with respect mm-hmm. and, and kindness and was, was given, you know, their fair due for what they did for the for us as a, as a, as a you know as a business within that that building. So yeah, that's such a good point. I, I, it was kind of similar advice, or is it really? Of, of, of a, uh, I can't remember sergeant or inspector of mine saying, "Get to know the cleaners in your station." Well, I think it was when I was promoted to sergeant. Was, Get to know the cleaners in your station because they know everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is probably not the same sentiment, but <laughs> but actually the point is actually where I mean I didn't get to know people for that reason but because I like people but mm. when you get to know people their their job or their role doesn't it, you know you just don't know their story behind yeah, it yeah. which is what's fascinating to me and I always think people miss miss that richness of life by making a judgment about that yeah, I remember yeah. speaking to one lad in police custody not he wasn't in custody he was he was a detention officer on uh, the staff side but he was a traffic warden for the for the same for Durham police at one time and he said do you know what? The number of cops that started talking to me differently when I became a, a detention officer from a traffic warden was unbelievable. Really? And, you know, traffic wardens probably don't have the best of him, no, <laughs> image no, or the no, best no, of no. reputation, whatever. But you, it makes you think, doesn't it, how we form these judgments and, and whatever. And that's it. I think, you know, even in the sentiment, you know, it's like my dad was never, uh, it wasn't like he ever looked down on people mm-hmm. who weren't, you know, it wasn't classed as potentially, you know, non-skilled labour versus someone who was at the top of a business. It was just basically, it doesn't matter where you are in life and yeah. what level you think you're at, yeah. you're all human beings, so talk to them like human beings, yeah. you know, and and I just, I, I just got, I've got so much more out of life being like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's much richer that way. Yeah, and I think it's useful to be reminded of that as well mm-hmm. over time. And we were talking about CrossFit off-air, surprise, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> listeners who've listened for a while, um, and I think that's one of... <laughs> one of the things that we I find with CrossFit is there's exactly that because you've got your elite athletes there who are like you think flipping hell um, and you've got people like me who kind of go on just trying to do our bit and there there isn't that sort of rank or status or whatever it's just community and I yeah. think that's what that's that's beautiful really in, in that sense so. I think it's really important and it, it goes to my I'm, I won't sort of spoil things in terms of what I do now but in terms you know I People reach out to me all the time in my new world and ask me for advice, yeah. and I always offer it, you know, yeah. because it's really important that you support other people who are wanting to do what you're doing and don't know how to do it or aren't there yet. It's mm. like you know, and we should all be sharing because everyone, everyone, you get so much more out of life doing yeah. that way, you know. Absolutely. Before we do jump into that, one of the key things that um, I want to explore was your journey through the work yeah. and the experience of burnout I guess in that because I think this yeah. this is a key thing for midlife is it's not always burnout but it's that sense of sometimes we fall into roles because they scratch one itch mm. but they're not necessarily the thing yeah I mean who knows what they wanted to do I didn't know what I wanted to do at 15 18 no, 21 no. I still don't know what I want to do when I'm old, <laughs> you know? but I think we kind of find things but we have to take a lot of the crap along with it as we build a life mm. responsibility do you want to tell us about that side of it yeah I mean it was it, Obviously, my background radio, 20 years of it, and the most fun I ever had to this day in radio was when I started out writing commercials because it was creative, it was fun, it was exciting because it wasn't doing this bloody low flush kind of, you know, which is the company I worked for. It wasn't them, um, it wasn't fishing equipment, it was just fun and it was exciting and it was dynamic. It was a radio station. That was really, really fun. I never had a passion for radio in the sense that a lot of people in the industry have you know, the kind of Kenny Everett syndrome where they grow up with a little, you know, they have a, a, a radio station in their bedroom and then they go and be like what we would call technical operators, work weekends when shows went automated and then they might get a little late night evening show or an overnight show and they sort of build in and it's, it's everything they've ever wanted to do. Mine was just a complete sort of random accident. But one thing I've always done is whatever I put my hand to, I want to be bloody good at it and I want people to... You know, and again, it all, you could go back a long, long way into our upbringing and, you know, how our parents were and the values they instilled. But for me, it was always do be the best you can be and deliver. And, you know, you pay me a decent salary. I want to deliver the results. I want to have pride in my work. And, you know, the Australia thing was a bit of an accident. It was just a time in my life I'd always wanted to do it. An opportunity came up. I'd been let down in a job I was doing in Scotland in terms of what I was promised to go there. Didn't materialise. And I just thought, you know what? Loyalty is one thing, but this for me is, a, is an opportunity to just expand. And I've just met my now wife. We decided to go over to Australia. We'd only been together six months and we haven't lived together. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire, shipping ourselves to the other side of the planet. Um, really was. And, um, and the making of us as well. But when I got out there, you know, what I found was that 
everyone has this image of Australia being flip-flops and barbecues. And perhaps in Queensland, which is sort of north of Australia, people don't know it, and Perth, which is Western Australia, there's an element of that where people finish work, they go to the, you know, the surf club, they'll have a few beers, they'll have a barbecue, whatever. When you live in Sydney and Melbourne, the kind of main metropolitan cities, as they used to call them, and particularly radio, there's an enormous amount of money attached to the radio industry, more so than there is here, because there's no BBC. So there's none of these big behemoths like Radio 2, Radio 1, taking up valuable airspace. There's just commercial players, and they've got enormous budgets. You know, they pay incredibly well, but they expect their pound of flesh from it. Mm. And um, that was a bit of a shock, really. And I, in my first couple of years, I worked quite hard. And then I moved further into, I had a sort of national role looking after branding on air. And then I moved into some hands-on, part-time, or kind of for, not part-time, but it was, it was supposed to be a temporary thing where... Um, a breakfast show producer who was, you know, this is how stressful it was. This guy, I think he talks about this now. He's still, you know, he's still quite a big name in Australia. But he got so stressed out doing the job, he tried to kill himself. So right. I had to step in, sort of, or I was asked to step in as well as doing my own job and support the team that he was supporting on air while supporting my own team downstairs. And, you know, you're a POM, you've got this kind of like, there's a, uh, an acceptance you know you're a good you, you might be a good bloke but you don't really know much about radio and I had to try and convince them that I knew as much as they did and probably more so I started working long hours I was working from our God, I'm trying to think I was probably in at five in the morning but then not leaving till maybe six seven o'clock at night so I did that for a bit and that was quite stressful but then I went to Melbourne um, I did well there you know there was a new boss came in thought we did a really good job in Sydney. There's an opportunity in Melbourne wanted to go there. Now, Melbourne was a complete turnaround job. It was a basket case in a station that was failing in every sort of show. And we were rebranding, rebuilding, and it was intense. And again, halfway through the year, we got rid of a breakfast show producer. And my boss said to me, we want you to run it and the station. So we wanted to run the show and the station, which meant I was uh, in the office for half past four. Uh, we went live at half past five. And then I was doing breakfast, <clears throat> uh, duties, planning, lots of planning going into it, uh, till about midday. And then I would start my day job and I would be home for about six, have something to eat, go to bed, get up the next morning at four o'clock. Because I only lived literally around the corner from the mm -hmm. station and be in the station for half past four, do it all over again. And I did that for about three or four months. And that was really where um, I started to, for the first time, really feel burnout, yeah. like anxiety, um, I always, I always remember this sort of tingling in the top of my head, like the two main lobes of your brain or whatever you would call it. Um, I always remember them tingling when I was burning out. And I still haven't had that for a long time, but that's an early warning sign for me. Right. So if I get a tingle in the, on the top of my head that I'm, I'm heading towards anxiety, potential panic attacks, that sort of stuff. Right. Because it did get to the point where I, you know, I was having panic attacks and... Um, and I just got very lost in it all. And I was like, this isn't, this, you know, and then the opportunity came, you know, opportunity came up to come home to a slightly less stressful position. And I took it. And then I just, within 12 months of taking that, I was group content director looking after, you know, from one station to, to 16, which then became 22. So, you know, it was kind of strange to, I'm coming home to just take a little step back. And then 18 months later, I'm running Europe's biggest radio network. You know, we'll go figure why. It's in me. It's how I'm sort of driven, really. Okay. Yeah, so I was very, very burnt out. And that then sort of, it was okay. I had a good support team around me, but by the end of me leaving radio, I was getting back into that place where I was sort of feeling burnt and, you know, and, and un, I don't know, unappreciated, I think, the, the time that goes in versus what you were getting back. I was like, I don't think this is for me anymore. So... Yeah, that, uh, so was that burnout a factor in you shifting and making change? And then talk through the change and the decisions and the feelings that were going through. Yeah, well, 2017, it was about August time, I remember. The, we'd taken on, a, we'd, we'd, we'd acquired another group of radio stations in the Birmingham and, and uh, Nottingham areas and all around the, the Midlands, really. And that was a massive undertaking to sort of grow from 16 to taking these other six on was huge and it was a different culture and, it was, and it was, there was a lot of resistance to taking on what we were trying to implement and that was very very challenging and I remember having a conversation with my boss at the time and saying look I don't think you know we've got enough support about six months later I get uh, I get invited to a meeting in that meeting I'm then told uh, they're gonna bring somebody else in above me 
to, to help run the show. And I knew the guy that was coming in and I wasn't hugely kind of like blown away by it, but it was what it was. And I made the best of it. And it was another six months later and it was kind of a, what we, you know, we've been chatting about before, midlife crisis moment where you suddenly reevaluate everything because my first son was born in November of 2017. My dad became really ill um, in the, at the early part of 2018 and he sadly passed away in March. And we knew it was happening. We were given 12 months, but it was two weeks later, or three weeks, I think, actually, when he, when he finally passed. I remember looking at him when he was in the hospital bed and just thinking, you know, my dad worked away when I was a kid. He was away five days a week. Mm. He, his job, he lived for his job. He worked so many hours. He was good at it. He was everything I was, or I was everything he was, and I was becoming that. And I wasn't, you know, Vaughn had been around for maybe what, four or five months when, when, when dad was, was, you know, was sort of taken into hospital and then eventually into kind of hospice care. And I was like, you know, I bath him for an hour a night. Well, I don't bath him for an hour, obviously, but, you know, I get an hour. I bath him, I feed him, I cuddle him, he goes to sleep, and I'm out the door in the morning on a train or on the plane. And I was like, I'm becoming my dad. And he's, I wasn't awake, going to grow up not knowing who I am. And I was like, and it, so the, the seed had sort of been planted. And then I was off for, for when my dad passed, and then I had some extended paternity leave. And when I came back, not long afterwards, I was called into another meeting, which was just a general meeting. But it was like... Um, I want to talk to you about structure. Now, having been on that side of the, the conversation, I was like, all right, okay, well, you get the cold shiver. This isn't a good conversation. So it was basically we're restructuring. You're going to have a much smaller role again. That meeting finished. I went outside a bright sunny day in Leeds. I was stood outside Yorkshire TV, or what used to be Yorkshire TV, ITV now, and Radio Air, and I rang my wife. And um, she was just like, and her dad was in hospital at the time, so we had all sorts going on there, but she was just like, immediately, just walk go, you don't want to be there, you've had enough, they're not treating you right, just walk. And I was like, I know, babe, it's a lot of new house, baby, all of that sort of stuff. And she's like, we'll work it out, we'll sort it out. So I went to the meeting the next day, took my summer redundancy package, and then a week later I walked, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm done. It's interesting, isn't it, how lots lots happen and go on at these crucial times. And, and yeah. for me, the, the burnout part, you know, when you talk about midlife crisis, I guess is a good way to think about it because I... I often take issue with the crisis bit. I mean, people yeah, use it a lot yeah. because is it te- truly a crisis? If it is, then it needs some real intervention. But sometimes it's 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 everything coming out at once. It's that chance to reframe and think. But sometimes it just relies on a one decision, like mm-hmm. you know, just walk type of thing, you know. And, and then other things fall in place, as scary as it is, and what have you, you know. So what what you know in terms of the that process after? How did you feel afterwards? What was what was the process after that decision? It was terrifying because <clears> I had. I had four or five days to give them a decision, you know, to sit down and say, yes, I'm staying or I'm going. And we went back and forth, Kim and I and my wife, on why all the reasons to stay, it was only money. Realistically, was the only thing, the only reason to stay was the salary. Mm. There was nothing else. I wasn't enjoying the job anymore. Um, there was a few people who I was surrounded by, like my PA, um, who was amazing and she was just such a massive part of my life, you know, and I... I, and I not working with her every day was, was was one of the reasons I was a bit sort of reluctant to leave. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I can't stay for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not enough of a reason. The money's not enough of a reason. So in the end, and I remember we, we took a walk along the Derwent Walk, which is a sort of path, an old train track near where, where I live, with Vaughan in a pushchair. We walked to the Derwent Walk pub from where mm-hmm. we live. And we had something to eat. And I ordered a jack of potato with cheese and beans. I just remember it because I, I couldn't really, my stomach was turning. Mm. I still, I could, I could barely eat the thing. My stomach was just, I feel everything in my stomach. And I was so nervous about it. And the following, and we made the decision, you know, together. We came and said, right, we're going. And the following day I went to Manchester where the, where the, the office was. And I had to wait until four o'clock to have the meeting. And I was in bits all day, which is crazy because I'm the one saying, I'm walking away from this, guys. And I was somehow worried that they were going to judge me for walking away. Mm-hmm. And then my sister's in HR, I spoke to her, and I spoke to Kim. And it was lovely again, bright sunny day. It was, one, it was, it was 2018, so it was when we had that beautiful summer which led into the World Cup, and um, which I watched a lot of, which was great because I was off. And um, I remember having the meeting and saying I was leaving, and, and again, just feeling really sick. But then it's incredible relief. I went out with Palomine, who was one of the senior directors. He was in Manchester. And I'd agreed to stay over, and he and I went for some beers straight afterwards, pretty much in the sunshine, and then a curry. I mean, we just sort of downloaded about it all. 
and it was just the feeling of relief was incredible. Yeah, you know, soon to be replaced with complete fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so you have relief, you have fear, but it's a terrifying thing to do. And you know, we're four years down the track, and it's been a very bumpy ride at times. Um, but you know, I I made the right decision. Yeah. It hasn't always felt like it. Yeah, but that's but whenever it hasn't felt like it, it's because I've come from a place of fear rather than belief. Mm. Um, you know, fear of what what have I let go of? Was I was I stupid? Did I make? Yeah. Was I? What's the word I'm looking for? Irresponsible. Yeah. With a little baby to walk away. You know, why didn't I just stick it out? You know, my mom to this day still thinks that I haven't got a proper job. Yeah. <laughs> you, know. but you don't have a proper job. Do well, you? Well, it's a proper job. <laughs> That's right. Is exactly. a thing? Exactly. You know? but it's interesting that because I think this is the thing about where do, where does the feeling come from that is kind of almost trying to influence you or guide you. I mean, I've certainly experienced that at times, especially recently with transition in the business, is that, am I stupid giving this up, you know, giving up mm. the speaking train inside, blah, blah, blah. And you have to sit, you have to kind of, catch, as my Irish cousins would say, catch yourself on and <laughs> kind of just sort of take a moment and go, hang on a minute, where's this coming from? Yeah. Yes, there'll be some practical things I have to factor in, but where is that driving from? And it's pride, it's, am I giving, I put a lot into that, um, fear yeah rather than potentially the with well, the other side which is excitement i love what i do you know the, the other side so how so i mean your journey after that obviously developed mm-hmm. so what did you do after that and how did, did that guide you that that fear versus yeah i was very lucky that i in the in when i sort of set out on my new role my new world to try and you know to become a coach to become a writer i met some people along the way who are still with me now in terms of support you know yeah. donna and cheryl from yeah. your time and my coaches and, you know, without them, I probably wouldn't be here because of the, the, the most terrifying, frightening times, they were the ones that were like, gave me the tools and, you know, and, and, the, and the, the, the belief to keep going. It isn't easy, but it will come good. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It's useful to share that as well, because the journey's bumpy afterwards and those kinds of feelings are natural. And I think, mm. any, you know, we're not saying pack your job in if you're unhappy. It's, it's <laughs> a, there's a whole journey and process there and it might be the job just needs to change, etc. Yeah. But if you are, those feelings of anger, bitterness, resentment, regret, perhaps questioning, they're going to be natural even if you've, in the long shot, made the right decision. Do, do you know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. You know, they're all the time for me. So how, what, you know, you mentioned the caution the writing. What, what, mm. what, how did that journey unfold then for you? When the changes were made... In the first instance, when they brought the new guy in, into into Bauer where I was working, I started to think about what else can I do? What's important to me? And I uh, I really like working with people. I like developing people. Uh, for me, I wanted to look at coaching, and I did some coaching training within the organisation to coach people in the business. Hmm. And I managed to get myself onto a, a coaching uh, practitioner's course, which I loved, and it was... Uh, it was about, I think it was about six sessions and it was in London and I used to go away and I met some great friends through that. And that for me was the coaching book. I was like, because I was getting coached myself and I was really appreciating the work the coaches were doing me. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I think I could probably do that. So I got that. And that was the back of my mind. I can go and be a coach and I can, initially I can work with large organizations because that's my background in, you know, with, with large corporates, I can streamline, help businesses simplify their, you know, their operations, not necessarily... Um, by cutting, you know, uh, people out of the business, but making sure that the right people are doing the right jobs, and you know, and, and just making sure the operations are running well. So that kind of was my was my initial thought. That didn't materialise in the end. I ended up working more with one to one people, and particularly now with, well, I worked with veterans with, uh, you know, uh, with with, with uh, mental health issues. Mm. That was a big part of the last three years for me. And now I'm working with people with neurodiversity. But the thing that was in the kind of the front of all of that, the dream, which is now becoming a reality, was to become a full-time author uh, and, you know, a crime fiction author. And I'd written a book or I'd been writing a book for 10 years, which I started in Australia. And actually, when I was in the group role, I was on the train and plane every day somewhere. I used to take an hour first thing in the morning and sometimes at the end of the day to write the book, Media Monster, that was that I then published. And uh, I put it out there and I was fully expecting to be swamped and to make millions and it to be a TV show or a film or something. And um, sadly, once all my friends had exhausted uh, or exhausted my, my links and my, my, you know, my Facebook friends, I didn't really sell that many more copies. And that was that was really disappointing because I, I even did a BBC radio, a local radio tour. I went around all these stations, used my contacts and went to Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, um, you know, Newcastle and uh, Teesside. 
uh, and, and sold nothing off the back of those, which was really kind of dis- dis- disappointing. And uh, by the end of 2018, I was starting to think, I'm really now, because my redundancy money was running out, or was running down, I should say, I've got to get my arse in gear because come Jan Feb, I'm going to have to start paying mm. for the house by my own means. I can't rely on my redundancy. And um, so I started, I even went to see some recruitment agencies. I was like, well, you know, maybe I should just get another job and what can I do? Explored all the avenues. And then late one Friday night, I remember it was in October, I got an email, 10 to 5, and it came through from a guy called Brian Lynch uh, from Incubator Books. And they were, they were a Dublin, Dublin digital publishing house and they were just starting out and they said, you know, we'd really like, we've read Media Monster, um, we love the story, we, we wondered if you would consider uh, publishing it with us. Uh, we'd like to change the cover, change the name, <laughs> change the story. <laughs> and that was my ego into hyperdrive. I was like, so I'd gone from, oh, they want to sign me to, what? Well, why do you want to sign me if you want to change everything, you know? <laughs> um, so I ended up going to Dublin to meet these guys. Where I must insert in there, and Kim will never forgive me for saying this, but I always say it is, she came home that night, and I was like a kid in the sweet shop, you know, it's Christmas morning, and I was like, look at this, look at this, look at this, and I showed her the email. And Kim is immediately very protective and naturally cautious, and she went, well, what if it's a scam? You know, and like, you know, why would you give away 55% of your royalties? Um... Uh, to these guys when you can get them all for yourself and I went well 55% or 45% of something is better than 100% of nothing mm-hmm. so we had this argument and I was like you know I think the phrase was I think for pissing all over my dreams or something like that <laughs> I am slightly dramatic <laughs> you know, it, it does work in the, in the field I'm in now and um, yeah. I went to Dublin met the guys and they blew me away so right. I signed I was the first one on the books and then I helped them sign others because they would always send people to me saying well you know authors that they'd been looking for and what they were doing, they were basically scouring books that were, were rating well but weren't selling. Because it was like, we know you can write, but we need, you know, we can now give you a reason to come to us rather than do it yourself. Yeah. Um, and so I signed with them. And I, as of March uh, the 13th, I think it was March 12th, I'll be publishing my 11th title. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been, a, it's been exciting. There's been a lot of work gone into it, you know. Yeah, and I'm in awe. I'm in awe of, of that. Because uh, and we'll get into that very shortly, yeah, yeah. but I can like having written a book and, and I've never I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast, but um, we know because you met Helen, but I yeah. wrote years ago now um, book from Alan to Helen: A Journey Through yeah. Time and Gender with a friend of mine, Helen, who um, was um, Alan for fifty odd years and had a, an amazing life from drug dealer to wagon fitter, to drug, all sorts <laughs> of things. Just like yeah, yeah. and somebody introduced us and said. Um, you know, knew that I was interested in writing. And I was still then trying to work out what my thing was. I was in the police. I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to leave. I didn't know what it was. Writing was seemed like something I like to write. I love writing. Um, anyway, kind of wrote the book, thinking, right, here we go. <laughs> you know? And, yeah, sold around Bishop Auckland where Helen lives. A few people there. We got on the radio in Newcastle once. Um, and it's, you know, it's made a few hundred quid over the years. And every mm-hmm. so often the Kindle will drop in two quid or the, the other one will drop in because it was self-published. Yeah. Um, and... It, it was a great learning experience, and you learn a lot of the craft. But I realised just how flaming hard mm. the not just the writing, but the the whole process of write, edit, and just edit, edit, then edit again, then edit yeah. again. And we've done obviously two editions with it. And I still love writing. I still love it. And and in me, I'm uh, you know in terms of the work I do, I've got the idea of a book. It's not about the diet, that kind of thing. Yeah, but. It's also realised what a mammoth task that must be is. So, tell tell a little bit about your book, the books, yeah. the series, the characters, and then we'll do a little bit of dive into the that process yeah. because I'm in awe of it. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, the first book, Media Monster, became Deadly Secrets. So yes, even though it's yes. eleven titles, essentially, um, Media Monster, Deadly Secrets are the same book but rewritten. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and the, the story of that is they would say write about what you know. It was inspired by. A guy in Australia called Kyle Sandilands, who is a very big name over there, you know, huge sort of household name, and he had a bit of a reputation for being a bad lad and all that. And actually, I know people who work with him, and he's a sweetheart, but his persona on air is this kind of gruff mm-hmm. exterior. But actually, he's a really lovely fella. But I'd written, I'd sort of written the character, started writing the book in Australia, then converted it to Manchester. And so Marty Michaels was my my lead character. He was a radio presenter on a national radio station based in Manchester, and he wakes up in a hotel room with a dead body in uh, a hotel room he never 
he didn't remember booking and there's a dead body in the shower. And it kind of like, he's a guy who has had a go at so many people on air for low morals and he's like, you know, his moral compass is higher than everybody's. Right. And actually he then finds out what it's like to be the hunted through, um, through the media, you know, the hunter becomes the hunted. So in that, there is a police team and um, when my publishers sort of chatted about the follow-up, you know, what do we do next? I said, well, I don't really want to do anything else with Marty. Although he makes cameos in two books uh, in the series, um, in, including the latest one that's about to come out. I don't really think that having a radio presenter solving crimes is is really the way to go in 20, you know, at the time, 20, 2019. Because... You know, Jessica Fletcher did that. That's fine. You know, right. right. So we don't need another one. You know, a midnight call, all that kind of stuff for those of a certain age. So for me, it was, I said, look, I really like, I've got great feedback on uh, uh, DCI Phillips and the team, Jones and Bobolino. I'd quite like to do some crime fiction around them. And they were like, magic, brilliant, let's do that. So the characters sort of, they morphed in. And what's interesting is I'm reading Deadly Secrets now just to go back um, four years later or five years later, it was before years. And whilst the writing is a little bit immature, because obviously that was the first book and what I do now, I've learned the craft a lot more. Mm. The characters are quite different to what became. So in the, interestingly, in, in the first book, they're quite spiky and fighty and, you know, they, they, they really want to do my, Marty Michaels down. Whereas in, as they've developed, they're much more, I think they're much more based on the type of people I would want to spend time with. You mm. know, they're decent, they work hard, they can... Phillips, you know, DCF Jane Phillips is loosely based on me and my moral compass and how I treat my teams, hmm. I think. And, um, you know, she, she sort of says the things I'd love to say to my bosses, <laughs> yeah. or wish I'd said to my bosses, because I was far too diplomatic, where she's not in the slightest. And it's kind of, um, you know, the, the feedback is great. It's a, there's a team there, and the, the biggest compliment I get is people say, Oh, I felt like I'm back in the team. I'm in there. I'm in the I'm in the briefing room with them. I'm in the incident room. I'm solving the crimes. I feel like mm. the old team are back together. The band are back together, sort of mm. thing. I got I've got goosebumps, you know, just saying that. And that is that's the feedback I get, and it's it's fabulous. And and so yeah, so with the, the, I, I sort of Deadly Secrets was just a name I had in my in in my list of names for the original book. And then when the next one was called Deadly Silence because it was about people not saying things and someone taking revenge because you know essentially. You know, his life was ruined because nobody spoke up to protect him. Mm. So that became deadly silence. And then we sort of worked through and I thought, oh, we can keep with the deadly themes. So we've got deadly waters, deadly vengeance, deadly obsession, deadly betrayal, deadly caller, deadly night, deadly craving, and now deadly justice. Right, yeah. So yeah, it's um, it's there's a lot, there's a lot of writing going on in them. I think yeah. if you look at that, probably about seven hundred thousand words. Yeah, all about. You know, it's not even a book a year. That's it's twenty twenty three now. You started what twenty? I do two and a half a year. Yeah, wow, two and a half a year. I'm trying to get three, but right. it's almost right. quality could could sort. Of, I think could struggle there. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I jumped. Well, we met round about deadly silence time. Yes. And yeah, yeah. I haven't read. I hadn't read the book before. Oh. The, the the first book. What was it called? A deadly deadly Secrets. Secrets. That's right. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I don't even know if we if I. We'd had that conversation about that character actually, yeah, because I jumped in and realised that, or, or jumped into the, the the team was formed, the characters were forming, really, yeah. and and it felt like, you know, here we are running, off and running. So I hadn't really thought. I knew there was a book before, but I hadn't really thought I, about what that was. So yeah. it'd be interesting to, to to go back and read that one. But yes, they've developed great, and 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 I, and I totally get that that um, that feeling of being disappointed when one ends. You know, oh, thank you. you know, and and. You know, things like Lord of the Rings. There's never going to be Lord of the Rings type of yeah, thing. Yeah. And I'm waiting for Patrick Rothfuss to publish his third book <laughs> the, of the Name of the Wind series. But that aside, because I know you know what it's like when you get invested in the characters. So for yeah. me, that it's it's brilliant that you can kind of keep developing the characters and stories and keep bringing the, the reader back in. Yeah. And I love that. So this is the frustrated writer in me, I guess, from, from that side. Um, but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because... You would. You were in one place with a job. You kind of fell into it because of the interest in that. You've used your writing through it, but then ended up on a totally different course into senior management leadership, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. The burnout, and out of it seems to have come for all the pain an opportunity. And I don't want to be glossy about it because yeah. you know, let's be right. Bad things can happen, and it doesn't mean it turns out all well. Yeah. But you you tapped into that that dream or that ambition to write something. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was a burning desire, and people said, you know, I would get up at ridiculous o'clock when I was working in corporate and go and sit in an airport lounge in Manchester because we used to live in Manchester and write. 
and it was my way of disappearing into yeah. the dream because I had the dream all I mean I enjoyed the job you know to a point you know I was never like my, my the best ever job in the world but I, I loved working with Deb my PA I loved working with the senior team I had I had great relationships you know I knew loads of people across the business so you know I enjoyed that side of it but the the passion to write the dream was always you know to be able to write every day and you know I used to go on holiday and I'm a bugger for it where you know in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, however long I'm away, a week. As soon as I get halfway, I'm like, oh God, I'm going home soon. And that, you know, I used to do what I used to do all the time because it was like I have to go back to the stress of the job mm. because it was a very stressful job. And, you know, holiday, you escape, and then you're back to it. And I was always dreaming of not having that feeling. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have that feeling. Yeah. You know, it's great. I choose who I work with every day. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm in between books at the minute, I'm doing some plotting and planning for the next one. I need to get my arse in gear and sort of crack on again and that sort of kick in properly again next week. But yeah, it was just, a, it was such a burning desire to me to, 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 to want to do it. I mean, I would always advocate follow your heart. Mm. We had a bumpy ride because COVID happened in the middle yes, of all this, yeah. you know, and the business wasn't established. Therefore, mm. you know, financially it was very challenging, but you can't foresee a, 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 you know, a global pandemic. Okay. It happened and it happened. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I was sat in the house and it allowed me to write, you know, mm. half a day anyway, because obviously my wife was at home as well because she was furloughed, so we had to sort of manage Vaughan, <laughs> our little boy. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it was just something that was in me that I'm, and I actually, I got to the point as well when you know people will probably feel like this if they make the leap and it doesn't quite work out straight away. You start to think about the relief of getting a regular salary every month was better than the fear I'm going through yes. following my dream. Yeah. So I applied for a number of roles back in radio and never even got an interview. You know, I could have done these jobs standing on my head with my experience. And it's, you know, I'm an exponent of change, so I probably didn't fit the, the organisations I was trying to, you know, to, to get into. Um, you know, status quo is important in a lot of places and I very much shake up the status quo. Um, but, you know, I thought, I look back now and I'm like, do you imagine if I'd got that job because I had it in my head, I could do the job, and then I could take an hour out every day and write, and da, 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 I can write in the mornings. Life just gets in the way, you know, and I wouldn't be doing it. I'd probably have a job with a decent salary, but I wouldn't have, you know, my 11th title coming out next yeah. month. And long term, I mean, the great thing is, and I don't mean this in a sort of like Billy Big Balls way, I earn money in my sleep now. Mm. You know, I go to bed, and people in America are, are reading it, downloading it, you know, and all, all over the world, essentially. That is the is the goal for anyone. I think is to get passive income when mm. you know you're earning stuff without having to do it. You put the effort in, but then it sort of repays mm. you back afterwards. And that in itself is um, you know you sort of think I can't really do that in in radio. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. This is I guess this is part of the 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 interest for me as as the restless midlifer. It is about how do we find or tap back into the things that used to excite us. Mm drive us, whatever it's kids or teenagers, but we lose as we get into the responsibilities of life and work out, that kind of thing. And you talk about burning desire, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what what was my drive in that? And, what, what, you know, if listeners are telling you, what, what, what would I be? And I think sometimes you, you can often be clouded by the stress and the strain and the demands of work and life, mm. perhaps drinking too much, not, you know, all the, the things that you, oh, you mix yeah. in. And it's how to, how to recognise what it might be in those times because yeah. you 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 said that you would take an hour in the hotel before you know and and at the end of the day and that that's obviously clearly an indicator because it doesn't sound like it sounded like it, you you wanted to do it rather than yeah. you discipline and must do it yeah. do you know what i mean so any thoughts on what somebody might look for in themselves you know if there's a particular fire or ember should we say burning that uh, that's there, you know. A friend of mine in Australia used to say to me when I, you know, when I was, we used to talk about it, and I'd be stressed out and I'd be trying to figure out how to make the right decisions. Decisions. She's just like, you know, sit and listen to yourself. What, what can you, what can you notice? What do you want from from life? And I think, you know, mine goes back to being a, a child. I, I, I entered a writing competition, like a capture competition for. Um, Horace and Doris, which used to be an Oldersfield examiner, and I won. I was only like eleven, and I won five quid for something which was um, uh, it was quite, it was quite spiky. What I put in, it was quite fun. I think you know, they obviously thought so. And I used to write stories as a kid. Um, like I used to watch TV and not enjoy what was happening. I didn't like the ending, so I didn't go and write and and, mm. and draw. 
like a storyboard of how it should have happened it should have ended I remember Dynasty was one that I didn't like the ending on because I used to watch that sort of shit when I was a kid <laughs> and I went in my room and, and, and redid it all and I think for me it was kind of you know it was the, the embers started appearing usually when I was on holiday when I was sort of sitting there lying yeah. there going what would I do what could I do what would what would really make me happy if I was to do it and you know I look around and see people reading and think you know I can write. I used to, I, you know, and where was? I guess maybe it's where. If you look at your life, where have you been the happiest in what you were doing? And for me, mm. I said radio. My happiest days were writing and creating. Right. You know, we were writing red, little thirty-second ads, a minute. You know, stuff. And you know, some of them were pretty good, pretty entertaining. But it was just that energy, that that you know, excitement of getting it signed off, and that instant gratification. You know, write something. Someone goes, "I love it." You produce it. It's on air. You hear it come out speakers really exciting I think it's I think there's something in that you know it's like where were you at your most excited yeah and where do you feel what what would you know where do you feel most alive when you think about it do you get some sort of something yeah there's some there's there's a nugget in there you should explore yeah I think that's a good point as well about the the explore but just being a taking some quiet time yeah um, and I think that's a real power and it's come up it's, it's interesting now it's come up a number of times with guests over the over this, the podcast series and also with me the thing that I'm realizing particularly over the transition over the last year that the 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 joy is in the creativity for me mm-hmm. and to in order for that to start the ember to catch a wisp of something to turn into a flame it needs less input and there was a time over the last few years where I realized it was just, I was either listening to an audio podcast or something, or there was always something going in or I was speaking on a stage or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the time that I just stopped and went through the discomfort of being quiet and on my own and with my thoughts, stuff surfaces. Yeah. I might be in the shower or, or deliberately sitting for a, for a while. Yeah. So I think that's a really cracking like insight to help people because that tied with what did you used to do? What did you used to like watching? I used to get carried away with Star Wars and that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. And for me, there is the there is the creativity. I love film and video and creating small little things around that. And it's even making me think now that you know that that's where I'm happiest. Yeah. So maybe I should do a bit more of that as well. You know, I love the coaching. I do love the coaching. Um, but I also love the creativity bit of it of coming up with an idea or something, seeing something work or an issue raised. Yeah. Oh, I could turn that into so. For me, for the listeners as well, is is thinking how you could play with that, how could how you'd allow that time, especially if your life's full on with work and, and what have you, you know. It's one of the things my writing tutor in Australia, a guy called Roland Fishman, used to talk about was um, putting uh, an idea in the. Um, if you were stuck for an idea or stuck for a, a plotting point, would be to put it in the idea toaster. He would say, stick it in the idea toaster and go for a walk. And by the time you come back, an idea have popped up. And I'm, mm. I have yet to not get an idea while I'm out for a walk. I love that. And you can do it like at lunchtime, you know, yeah. you can nip, if, if, if you get a lunch hour and a lot of people don't, I would suggest to try and take at least one or two a week, get out, have a walk, mm. get some fresh air, and just sit and notice and think about, you know, what excites you. And, you know, think about when you see, you know, we're all sitting, we doom scroll, you know, TikTok, oh, TikTok, yeah, yeah. Flick, you know, yeah. we can lose hours on the toilet. I'm sure all of us sort of sit there <laughs> scrolling through. Yeah. But it's like, what? It's kind of almost be aware of what your what 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 is the stuff that you're looking at? What interests you? Yeah. And is there a commonality? Is there a theme yeah. in there? Because that there might be something embedded deep in it. That's not necessarily you know not talking about necessarily doing something daft that they do on TikTok, but there might be something where you just think, oh, maybe that could be something I could explore mm. and take your time with it because mm. you know rushing into things, you know, you're not going to make the right decisions if you rush in. Don't procrastinate for the rest of your life either. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's that sort of catch twenty two. But it is I think it's just listening. You're we all get so busy and we you know, it's, it's funny when you're out of it, because I, I you know I, I was thinking I was talking about I was out of it, I used to travel every single day, like everywhere, like flights, you know, trains all over the place. And about a year after I went down to London and back in a day, I got home and I was broken. I was like <laughs> yeah. I got in a kim and I was like yeah. I do this every day, and it's because you just get used yes, to it. Yes, you do. Yeah. You know, and and I think that's the thing is, is 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 try and take some time to step out and just have a little bit of time yeah. to yourself and allow yourself to think and breathe and you know just just listen to yourself because you will get answers, mm. but a lot of the times they're just clouded in noise that you're dealing with on a daily basis. And I'm not saying that's easy to switch off because it's not. 
Um, but it's just about allowing yourself every now and again, half an hour, just to go for a walk somewhere. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And even with the travel, because I've got a client who... Um, Travel isn't a major feature, but what they've built into their return journey more than they're going because they're prepping for whatever they're doing. The return journey is kind of kombucha and sit and meditate or just silence. Uh-huh. Or, you know, and, I, and I like that because it's kind of trying to make use of time that perhaps you would fill with just doing more emails or, some, or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's finding the opportunities for it. But I think that's, that's brilliant. And I'm, I'm conscious of time here as well. And we've been sitting <laughs> on your back. <laughs> but... but um, Really, just wrap up. I'm really curious then, because we've got the 11th book coming out. What, yeah. what do you see as terms of, you've kind of hinted at your ambition. Yeah. What is it in terms of your, your ambition for you and also DCI Phillips? And, you know, I'm guessing the two wrap up together anyway. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was talking to, I just had the same conversation this morning with a client because I'm still coaching. Um, yeah. It's about 50-50 at the minute. Mm-hmm. And ideally, I said to myself in the car the other day, I want to retire from coaching by the time I'm 50 and 48. And within five minutes, I went, no, I don't. Because as we were talking about before we came on air, um, writing is amazing, but sitting in your own head, and I kill people. I've, I've killed probably 30-odd people in 11 books. So, you know, I go to some pretty dark places. Staying in that space on my own all the time is not healthy. And I have a number of clients that I really enjoy working with that I'd like to carry on working with because I'm invested in them. Yeah. And so for me, it's kind of, I would imagine... Maybe 80% writing, 20% coaching, even as high as 90% writing, 10% coaching, just to keep me alive yes, in, yeah. in, in the real world. Yeah. Um, but really growing. I mean, people say, when are you going to finish with DCR Phillips? And if you look at someone like Peter James, um, who um, is, he's, 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 oh God, Grace, Grace. I know who he is, he's famous, slipped in mind. But Grace is now on telly. Obviously, I'd love DCR Phillips to, to yeah. be on to TV. Loads of people tell me it's very cinematic and should be on there. You know, I'm very ambitious and, you know, I believe hopefully in manifesting stuff like that will we'll come along sometime. But, you know, Grace is up to like book 20 or something and, and still going. And I think as long as you can keep reinventing the team, so mm-hmm. there will be changes. Yeah. And as I'm seeding into the book now, changes will come. Um, and also there's a spin-off I'd like to do at some point as well right. with one of the nice. characters, but up here in the Northeast. Right. So bring the character, promote the character. And I met someone the other day who works very high up. Uh, I was just a friend of a, uh, of a friend, really, in um, in one of the police organisations, and I was fascinated by what they do. And I was like, oh god, that could be a really good kind of, of vehicle for this particular character. Wow. But DCI Phillips will continue and continue and continue. Um, but as I was watching, I was watching Vera last night on the telly, just on record. And sometimes this is where you've got to sometimes you know suspend reality versus drama. And the reality is that a number of people, including Vera, would have retired by now. You know, the yeah, police officers, yeah. they get to 50, they're out. Kenny, for example, must be in his 60s now. <laughs> yeah. And in this particular series, he starts to look a little bit older. Yeah. And you, so you start thinking, we've got to keep it realistic. We've got to keep refreshing the team. And that's kind of what I'm doing. That's The plan is it will keep going. Phillips will always be there, I hope. Um, but again, you never know. You know, something yeah. else might happen. It's just... I go with it, and, and the stories kind of write themselves. It sounds very wanky, but it is kind of that thing of, you know, I get inspired, and the characters now, they're so well established, I just write how they would react to situations. Right. I don't that. have Love to that. kind of go, how would they do it? It's like, Bovolino says it in this way, Jones would react that way, Phillips would be that way, Fox, Carter, all these characters, and writing them now is becoming a lot more fun because it's almost like... I plan it and then I just bring them to life and they talk and it does sound very cliched and like the characters like themselves but they do when you get to a certain point you know it's 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 not easy <laughs> Love it. but it just forms yeah. and it flows and you know it's never easy the plot is a pain in the backside it goes on for a long time but that really once you start writing that's the fun bit you know so you separate out the plotting before you start to write yes 100% right. yeah that makes sense that makes sense because uh, yeah because I can imagine that is really complex yeah. If you write from a cold start, Anne Cleese writes from a cold start, and she says that she prefers that because she doesn't right. like to know where the story's going. Yeah. Oh, yeah, James yeah. Patson, the world's greatest ever you know, crime fiction, biggest selling, he's like plot, 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 plot. You know, right. do not do anything unless you're plotting. Because um, right. you, 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 know, you, you go down a lot of dark roads and, and dead ends, and we do that in the planning. So when I start writing, I know what every chapter's going to look like. Right. Yeah. You know? and, just, I, and, and in doing that, if I was writing full-time, I could write a book in about five weeks. Yeah. <laughs> right, literally, just yeah. like from start to finish, done. Because the plotting has been done, done, has been done. right? But with the coaching and work around yeah. that, it tends to be about 
10 weeks now right. to write a book. Yeah. Just so going because the first one took me 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time, the first book of Helen, it took eight years. We actually wrote it in six months. By the yes. time it took a faffed around for six months. But it does. So you but you're right. No, it's just been fantastic. It's been great to have you on and, and to, to explore the, your, for, for me, for the midlife, as I always say, it's about that story to highlight to others that, you know, there may not be the only one out there. These feelings, these emotions, stress, burnout, it happens and we can, there is a life after that. And in midlife, you're never too old to. You're not, you know, you're not past it. This talk that we have, and you can still pursue a dream, which I just, I love. It's so inspirational. And as I said, I'm in awe because it's kind of like you've hit that, you've hit the thing that you love doing yeah. and you're off. And yeah. I love that. And I think that's a, that's something that's really inspirational for hopefully the listeners out there. But well, thank you. I've really enjoyed being here. It's nice, it's, it's nice to be out of the office. And yeah, yeah. Well, we, we did talk. talk about, I know we talked about whether we should do a Zoom, but no, let's meet together. It's always yeah, nice to it speak real people and actually feel some Yeah, real human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than screens. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's great. So thank you. Anyway, if uh, anybody, we'll put stuff in the show notes, links, etc. But if anybody wants to get in touch with you, you can give a shout out if how they might want to get in touch with you, find your books, that kind of thing. Yeah, the easiest way um, is to go to omjryan.com, um, which is my uh, my book website. If you're interested in coaching, it's owenryan.org. Uh, um, and you can just seek out, um, if you want to go straight to buying books, it's Amazon OMJ Ryan, and they'll, they'll flag up their, um, it's the first thing that comes up. So, um, yeah, cool. I've been doing it a while, so yeah, 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 yeah. hopefully cool. you enjoy it. It's cool when you see the series as well. Oh, <laughs> it is. It is. That is cool. I must feel. I should send you a picture of my office because what I've done is I've put, I put all the all the covers in frames on the oh, wall, yeah. and they now start there and they work all the way oh, around. Man. So much so, I'm now having to take them off that wall and put them all on the front wall. <laughs> and in a couple of years' time, I'm going to have to get smaller frames, right. shrink them all down. I'm just going to keep going all. When the millions come in, just get a bigger get a bigger house. house. Yeah, just yeah. get a bigger house. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I like that. Well, thank you for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic, and, and a bit overdue for our catch up as well, as yeah. we were saying. But um, circumstances are, but uh, so so good to catch up and share your story as well. And thank I'm sure you. the listeners get a lot lots out of it. So, if anybody has any feedback as well, you can obviously get in touch direct with uh, uh, one. You can also give me some feedback at dave at restlessmidlifer.com. But I hope that's been as great an episode for you as it has for me. And we'll catch you in the next one. Thank you for listening. You'll find all show notes, links and resources mentioned at midlifereshape.com forward slash podcast. And it would mean so much if you could spread the word to your fellow restless midlifers. Share the show and links. And if you aren't already, subscribe to the show in your podcast feed of choice. And one more thing. If you enjoy the show, it would be great if you could rate it by visiting midliferesheape.com forward slash review. It would mean so much, and I may even give you a shout out in return. And a quick final thanks to production assistant Karen North of North BA, and for the music, which is called Silver Star by the awesome Logan Nicholson of Music for Makers at musicformakers.com. Take care for now, and don't forget you really can reshape your midlife health and rekindle that spirit of adventure. 